Acts 17, 16 to 34. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he argued in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and also in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Also, some Epicurean and Stoic philosophers debated with him. Some said, what does this babbler want to say? Others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign divinities. This was because he was telling the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. So they took him and brought him to the Areopagus and asked him, may we know what this strange new teaching is that you're presenting? It sounds rather strange to us, so we would like to know what it means. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners living there would spend their time in nothing but telling or hearing something new. Then Paul stood in front of the Areopagus and said, Athenians, I see how extremely religious you are in every way. For as I went through the city and looked carefully at the objects of your worship, I found among you an altar with the inscription to an unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, he who is Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in shrines made by human hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mortals life and breath and all things. From one ancestor, he made all nations to inhabit the whole earth. And he allotted times of their existence and the boundaries of the places where they would live so that they would search for God and perhaps grope for him and find him, though indeed he is not far from each of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we too are his offspring. Since we are God's offspring, we ought not to think that the deity is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of mortals. While God has overlooked the times of human ignorance, now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will have the world judged in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. When they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some scoffed, but others said, we will hear you again about this. At that point, Paul left them. But some of them joined him and became believers, including Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Let's pray earnestly for our sermon together. Almighty Lord, I'm daunted by preaching about this, and I pray that you would give me boldness and courage and words that come from you and that are right for us, that are true. And we pray that we could hear them, receive them, that you would change us by them. In Jesus' name, amen. So um, what I just read to you is Paul in Athens. It's call, often called the Areopagus speech because he's at this hill called the Areopagus. And this is a really, really important passage. People have, have examined this from 
all sorts of different angles and done all sorts of things with it. So, for example, is this saying that um, we need to be really well-versed in culture? Like, we need to read Shakespeare and the Atlantic and whatever else because that's the language of cultured people and Paul's trying to reach cultured people. Or is, this, or is this saying, Harvard students love this one. I think I heard a lot about this when I was in school. This in the book of Daniel. We need to educate ourselves thoroughly, profoundly, because it is our role, our task at times, at least some of us, to do this sort of thing, which is go to those who shape worldviews, the philosophers, the intelligentsia, and engage them so that, what, we can win their minds and hearts and then win the culture and then win the worldview war. I mean, there is all kinds of things this has been used for and thought about. Is this a blueprint? Is this a model for how to do that sort of thing? And what sort of thing is it? I don't know. I'm not going to do any of that today. Okay, I want to talk about two things. Not that those things aren't important. There aren't things to say about them. I just don't really know what I want to say about them. And more importantly, the two things I'm going to say are things that, that, that just came out to me as the two things probably we at this moment need to hear from this. So I called this um, speaking in new ways and hearing in news, new ways. And that's what I want to talk about. There, there are ways here that Paul speaks in ways that are, that are new. And there are ways here Paul listens and hears in ways that are new. And both of those things are really, really important for us. Let's talk about speaking in new ways. When I was uh, growing up as a Christian, I was often taught the gospel in a particular way. This is probably, probably best summed up and codified in something like the four spiritual laws, which many of you are familiar with. I used to be very familiar with them, and I have to confess I had to look them up this week to remind myself of what they are. Here's the gospel, according to this formulation. God loves you and created you to know him personally. That's law number one. Man is sinful and separated from God, so we cannot know him personally or experience his love. That's law number two. Jesus Christ is God's only provision for man's sin. Through him alone, we can know God personally and experience God's love. That's law number three. Law number four, we must individually receive Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Then we can know God personally and experience his love. And hearing something like that about my sinfulness which I was convicted of by the Holy Spirit, and about my need for someone beyond me, beyond any human, to be able to do something about my sinfulness, but about it being human sin, so it had to be a human too. And this sort of thing is how I'm standing before you today. I mean, this, this, this articulation of some of these laws or principles or claims, whatever you want to call it, was the gospel to me. And it still is. But I don't think it's the only way to talk about the gospel. 
That's my first claim today. Speaking in new ways, speaking in new ways. Paul articulates the gospel here in Athens in a way that doesn't sound a lot like the four spiritual laws. It sounds different. Look at your chart. Now, I don't expect you to look at this in great detail. This is sort of a reference point for later. And yes, the font is too small. And yes, the margins are too small. I was trying to say paper. Look, it's just meant to make one simple point. There are a bunch of evangelistic speeches and acts where someone shares the good news. And I went through and I looked at all of them and I compared how they talk about the good news, both like how they do it. You'll see some of that here. I analyzed it. And also what they say, what is the good news? And what you see is, you can see some of the four spiritual law stuff here in some of these speeches. But you also see other stuff that sounds different. And, and Paul and Peter, they talk to different people in different ways on different occasions, depending on what that person or people need to hear. You know, sometimes they... They make factual assertions and they interpret things and they quote scripture and they use biblical language and they talk about eyewitness testimony and they appeal to signs and powers. And sometimes they do a miracle and then they appeal to that to validate what they're saying. And sometimes they don't do that sort of thing. They do different things. We see in Athens, what? Paul quotes a, a Greek poet, Aratus. He quotes another Greek poet, we think, but it's not clear where that comes from. He talks in ways that are comfortable and familiar, even to Greek philosophers. He says different things at different times. Interestingly, as far as I can tell, there is one thing that is always, always, always stated in any of these speeches. Anytime someone opens their mouth in the book of Acts and they want to talk about what God has done and what the good news is for Jews, for Greeks, for anyone, you want to know what the one thing you could trace through all the speeches is? It's one claim. It's a factual claim. Jesus rose. God rose Jesus from the dead. God raised him from the dead. God raised him from the dead. That's the one thing that you see everywhere. But besides that, when they talk about good news, sometimes the apostles talk about salvation and Jesus is a savior. And it's not always clear what you're being saved from. They just talk in general terms. Sometimes they talk about the good news as God, Jesus has poured out the spirit now. That's what Peter does in chapter two. A lot of times they do talk about forgiveness, like the four spiritual laws talk about. Your sins are blotted out, where Jesus has given forgiveness of sins. Peter does this on a couple of occasions. Sometimes the good news sounds like this. In Jesus, there is peace. And in Jesus, there is no partiality so that every person, Jew and Gentile, can come together and receive forgiveness of sins. Sometimes they talk about how God is good and God is alive and God is living and God wants for us things that are not worthless, but things that are life-giving. 
Sometimes they say the good news is Jesus is the Messiah. Sometimes they talk about the kingdom of God. It's not always clear from the summaries what they're saying. One time, Paul talks about justice and self-control as being at the heart of his message about what God can allow us to have. My point is a pretty basic one. This should not surprise us or threaten us that the gospel sounds differently at different times. Vera, this week, we were singing Amazing Grace. And uh, I was joking with Gail. We had a different folder than we usually have. And I opened it up and I said, yes, this folder has the best verse of Amazing Grace. There is an answer to this question. This is not subjective. What is the best verse to Amazing Grace? Okay, it's subjective, but what's the best verse? When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. If we wrestle with that seriously, that means if we're going to talk about good news, of what God has done in Jesus for us and for the world, we could talk about it for 10,000 years plus. I mean, we're never going to run out of words to talk about the goodness of God and the significance of what he's done. So it's not only not threatening, it's entirely comforting that all these apostles are talking to different people in different ways. I met a man this week who I talked to about the good news of God. And he asked me this. Does God, can God take away our shame? Can God make me love myself? That was the burden of his soul. That was the burden of his heart. Now, as I studied these speeches and acts this week, I never came across that language. God taking away shame maybe kind of, sort of, indirectly, maybe, God allowing me to love myself. So what? Should I, should I have answered no? It's not in the book of Acts. I'd never see that formula. I said, of course, yes. Yes, absolutely. God can take away your shame. Does God want you to love yourself? Yes. God thought that creation was not complete without you in it. So for you to hate yourself in some ways is to hate the mind of the creator who wanted you created as you. That was the gospel for this man. Now there's more to be said, of course. Should I talk about Jesus? Yeah. Should I talk about God raising Jesus from the dead. I told you, that's the one thing I guess you always need to talk about. So here is, this is also a throwback. Question number one for you on your handout. Before I read it, side note, I talked at our elders meeting last week about something that's been on my, my heart a lot, which is how can we, how can we as a church be more formative? Stephen made a comment to me months ago that, that haunts me 
in a good and bad way. I mean, in a way that like has prompted me. Stephen says something like, you know, forgive me if I butcher it. Um, we, we come and we hear a sermon and we might be moved and we might, our, our minds might be engaged and our hearts might be engaged. And then what? We, 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 we drop it and we, we go home and then we hear another message the next week. And then we hear another message the next week. And then we hear another. That's really not how learning works. Formation works. Yes, he's right. So we were talking about, and we're, this is a side note, thinking about ways that deep personal intellectual slash heart questions like the one I'm about to ask you could be part of our church life. Could we talk about them in small groups? Could we talk about them before or after church? Could we talk about them as part of Wednesday prayer? But anyway, I, I, I say that to say this is not just sort of a handout thing. This is an invitation to actually use this question to do something in your life this week. And the question is this. It's two questions, I suppose. How do you need to hear the gospel today? How do your neighbors and your culture need to hear the gospel today? What do you need said to you? If the man I met this week, he needed something said to him about being able to be free from the burden of shame, what do you need said to you by God? that is the deep good news for your soul? What does God's raising Jesus from the dead, what is the power that that unleashed, how does that need to take shape in your life? One of the best things I did in the past year was when I had no voice and I, a couple times, it was Easter, it was Palm Sunday, I wrote up these little mock play dramatic enactment things And it was incredible to put myself in the shoes of this random character and think, what would they be thinking? What would they be moved by? What would have struck them by this man, Jesus, they see in front of them? So this is, the second question is like that. Your neighbors, the people you know, your coworkers, put yourself in their shoes. What would sound like the deepest, most profound part of God's work? on the cross, raising Jesus from the tomb? What do people need to hear about the significance of that? That's speaking in new ways. Hearing in new ways, second part of the sermon, is our second chart. So take a look at that. Again, this is for you to parse later. I'm trying to make a very simple point here. It's related to the first point. But here's the point. In a pagan altar, in pagan poetry, Paul, on the face of it, seems to hear just the slightest bits, at least, of God speaking. He hears how ever imperfectly, notes of God's tugging on people's hearts who may not know the law, who haven't heard the name or story of Jesus. He hears God drawing out from the cries of people's hearts a deep yearning for the one who gave them life and breath 
in whom they live and move and have their being. This is a remarkable thing for someone like Paul to do. Paul can at times, if you don't read all of the New Testament, he can sound like this sort of thing is not possible. The world is so hopelessly corrupt and sinful and foolish and against God and given over to idolatry and perversion that there is nothing of God to be found there. I could pull out passages that if you read them by themselves could sound like that. Paul gets angry. Start of the passage, he gets distressed. There's a lot that he sees in the world, as he calls it, that's darkness. But it's not all darkness. And when he wants to speak to someone from the heart, like he does now, who has this background, he can look at them with the eyes of Jesus. And he can say, there's something in you There's a glimpse in you. There's a yearning in you. I can actually see God's face, however imperfectly in you. That's the gesture. If he can look at this poetry and he can look at this inscription and he can say, God is calling out from those things, through those things for you, he's catching glimpses of God. This is kind of like Jesus and the rich young ruler. Rich young ruler comes up and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, keep the commandments. And he names some of them. And the rich young ruler says, I have kept those. And Jesus doesn't stop though. He doesn't say, oh, awesome. Okay, you're good. Jesus keeps going. And in Matthew's gospel, he says this. Matthew says, and Jesus beholding him, loved him. And then he says, sell everything you own, give it to the poor and follow me. And the man goes away deeply sad and dismayed. Now look at that. Think about what that means. Jesus looked at him and loved him. That's the gesture Paul's doing here. Jesus could have looked at that man and seen someone that was hopelessly mired in avarice and materialism and was just completely, entirely wrapped up in only that. He could have seen that. The man walks away because he'd prefer his possessions, it seems. But Jesus doesn't see that. Jesus beholds him and loves him. He sees that glimmer, however small, however faint in him, that wants eternal life. He sees the part of him that asks the question. He sees the part of him that says, I, I, I struggle, I, try to keep, I do the commandments. That's what Paul does here when he sees God in these strange places. So here's my second basic claim for today. I don't like saying this, by the way. It makes me uncomfortable saying this, by the way. Okay, I'll just say it. Apparently, apparently, God works outside of the boundaries that we think he needs to work within. Apparently, God is speaking and moving even outside of his people. I don't like saying that. It makes me really uncomfortable, right? I'm, 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 I'm very, very comfortable with Paul's notion of 
the world over on this side with its bad, sinful darkness and the people of God with the spirit and light on this side. I want to just say that and stop. This messiness I don't like so much. So I thought about it really long and hard. Okay, maybe, maybe I'm overreading Acts 17. Maybe I shouldn't say that. Maybe that's just an isolated example. So I'm overinterpreting it, except that there are hints of this at other points in the Bible that are even more profound and even more challenging. And so I have to say what I said to you. God works outside the boundaries that we don't want him to transgress. In Matthew 8, Jesus is in Capernaum and a centurion comes to him. Now, no, this is not one of God's people. This is not one of the Israelites. This is a Roman soldier. Centurion says, will you come and heal? No, he doesn't say come, actually. He says, will you heal my servant who's paralyzed at home? Jesus says, yes, I will come with you. I will heal your servant who's paralyzed at home. And he says, no, no, no. No, just stay there. Just say the word. You don't actually have to come there. You're powerful enough. You can just do it with your word from here. And what does Jesus say? I tell you in no one in Israel have I found such faith. Where'd that guy get this faith? He wasn't going to synagogue. Here's what really freaks me out. Does that guy become a Christian? Does it matter? What I mean by that is this. Is that story only in our Bible because we later know that he became a Christian? Or would that story be in our Bible even if he didn't? You see what I mean? Can God teach us profound things about faith, even outside the context of the people of faith? Let me not get carried away. That's just one example, right? I mean, there's, there's, there's no more of this. Well, one of the most startling verses in the whole Bible is Amos 9, 7. God is angry with Israel because they think the fact that they're his special people just kind of means what? They're not subject to judgment. They can kind of do what they want. They have a covenant. God loves them. They can just live as they will live, sinful or not. God's angry at that. And he says in Amos 9, 7, are you not like the Ethiopians to me, O people of Israel, says the Lord? Did I not bring Israel up from the land of Egypt and the Philistines from Kaftor and the Arameans from Kir? Do you see why that's one of the most crazy, radical, weird, cryptic verses in the Bible? What is that saying? We hear over and over and over in the New Testament, in the Old Testament, about the Exodus. And God worked in the midst of this one people to give them freedom from captivity. Are there other Exoduses? Are there other people in whom God worked that, what, we, we don't hear about in the Bible? Does the Bible contain the exhaustive record? of God's working with humanity? Well, not if you read the end of the Gospel of John. I mean, it would require every book in every library in the whole world just to tell the stuff that Jesus did. What about the stuff before and after that? Apparently, 
God is, 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 is working in all kinds of ways in places that we don't think he is. In Isaiah 19, it says this, on the day, on that day, Israel will be the third with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my heritage. And I bristle. Because I'm a biblical scholar and I know the Old Testament well and the New Testament well. And I say, God, you're not supposed to talk like that about Egypt and Assyria. You're only supposed to say that for Israel. The end of our Bible in Revelation 21, there's a beautiful vision of the new heaven and the new earth fused together, the spiritual, the physical, all the best of everything God ever wanted to create and redeem. And it's called the New Jerusalem. And one of the things we see in that vision of that city that we hope for, it says the nations, and these are the non-Jewish peoples, the Gentiles, nations and Gentiles are the same word in Greek and in Hebrew. The nations will walk in the light of the Lamb himself, Yeah, of course, good. Yeah, we're comfortable with that. Fine. Why are you making a point of this? Yeah, God saves Gentiles. We've been talking about that for weeks. But here's what it also says. The kings of the earth will bring their glory into the city. Now, if you stop and you think about the significance of that, that's as crazy and weird as Amos 9-7. Wait, what? So like the non-Israelite kings, the nations, the peoples, the Assyrians, the Egyptians, and what, they've, 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 they've done things in their culture, in their lives, in their history, in their literature, in their art that are beautiful and glorious enough to make it into the forever kingdom? Apparently, God is doing all sorts of things in all sorts of people, and we're not necessarily sensitive to this. I read a book this week that I'd been wanting to read for a while, and today's sermon gave me an excuse to read it, and I highly commend it. I don't really know anything about the author. This was a book that was in a footnote to a footnote to a footnote of something I was reading. It looked intriguing the way it was described. The author's name is a man named Tony Kriz, K-R-I-Z. The name of the book is called Neighbors and Wise Men. And the book is, is, is very, very accessible. It's a memoir. It's his life story, basically. Well, for 20 years of his life, between about the ages of 20 and 40, it's a memoir of his faith and of how his faith gets threatened and changed and strengthens and morphs. And he self-consciously frames it as basically how I found God in all sorts of places and people I didn't expect to and shouldn't have found him. And it's not too strong to say that in some ways the thesis of the book, although he doesn't state it this way, is he wouldn't be a Christian to this day. He wouldn't still have Christian faith were it not for non-Christian people in his life 
that let him see aspects of God that he needed to see to keep going and persevering and encountering God. He talks about how he was, this speaks to me. He talks about how he was raised in a two-team world. There were the spiritual haves and the spiritual have-nots. And the Christians were the haves and everyone else were the have-nots. And nothing good at all could come from the have-nots. Because if something good came from them, that's syncretism and that's idolatry and that's problematic and that doesn't fit into a good theological system. But his journey was one to realize how that was a view that caused him all sorts of problems and caused him to miss out on all sorts of ways that God works in the world. He tells amazing stories. He says, you know, I I learned courage. I learned Christian Jesus-like courage from the Muslim family in a small village in Albania who hosted Christian missionaries in their home. And when the entire village came out against them to do something terrible and violent, wanted to drag the missionaries out of their house, they stood in between the crowd and the missionaries. And these were Muslim people defending the Christian people inside and saying, no, they're our guests. We are showing them hospitality. You must not do anything to them at the risk of their honor and maybe their lives. Said, I learned something about Jesus's heart and about Jesus' courage through their example. I wish I could tell more and more and more of his stories. I won't, but I'll tell one more. I'll tell one more. My favorite, I I don't want to ruin the book for you either. My favorite is he talks about this young man who they befriended and he got to know, and they spent years, they went back and forth, and they butted heads, argument after argument over faith. And finally, the man definitively, it seems, gave up on Christianity. He said, I can't be a Christian because of how Christians treat the earth. This young man goes overseas, gets a great job, starts traveling the world, learning all these new things, all these new places, loves it. He's living his best life. His grandfather becomes sick, so he comes back to the States. And when he comes back to the States, he goes to Tony's house and has dinner with Tony and his wife because they're friends. And Tony and his wife share how they've been struggling profoundly. His business is failing. They are almost not able to make their house payments. They have three young kids. They're really struggling. They tell their good friend this. So this young man, who's not a Christian, Robbie was his name, he says, okay, here's what I've decided. I'm going to stay here and live in your house as long as is necessary. And I'm going to work a part-time job, and I'm going to use a lot of that money to help you pay the bills, and I'm going to wash the dishes, and I'm going to give you nights out, and I'm going to help you take care of the kids. You need help to make it, and I am that help. Tony says, Can I really learn nothing about the heart of Jesus from this man because he doesn't have Christian faith? I know it's weird and dangerous to talk this way. I've told you how uncomfortable I am. I mean, the two teams way of thinking is much cleaner and easier and I'm more comfortable with it. And I'm not denying that there is a lot about the dichotomy between world and church or world and people of God, world and kingdom of God. 
And I'm not at all denying that there's light and there's darkness. And I'm not, I'm not trying to be squishy and universalist or relativist or whatever logical place you want to try to take this. I don't think that what I'm saying takes us to a logical place. If it does, we're in trouble, and then we are off track. Don't let this take you to a logical, philosophical place. Let it take you to a heart place, to an experience place, to a place that just lets you say, with this man, Tony, how can I have better eyes to see and better ears to hear what God would say to me through any and all people, through any and all circumstances. So we'll end with the last question. This is the second question. Again, not a throwaway question, not a handout question. This is a question to wrestle with this week. Because I can tell you my heart was enlarged just by reading that book this week. That is not too stark a claim, and that is not me speaking in hyperbole. This kind of question I'm about to ask you can enlarge your heart and give you better eyes to see. Have you ever encountered God where you did not expect to? Thinking about that can open your eyes to some things. Amen.